Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. And honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God 
will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. We have come to the fifth and final week in our series on the book of Philippians. And um, actually, we were planning on spending, I was planning on spending six weeks, but as I have been working through the material, I realized the importance of uh, a grand finale in this sense. The point of this series, and one of the main points of the letter, is to emphasize the relationships between Paul and the Philippian Christians as an extension, as an imitation of the work of Jesus Christ for his people. Paul writes this letter, shares his heart to the Philippians, and then continues to explain how he thinks about his ministry, about his life, about the real possibility of giving up of his life for the sake of the the, the body, the believers in the Mediterranean world, and he explains his heart, he reveals his affection for the people of the city of Philippi, and he does so in a way that calls them up to that standard. We've seen how over and over again, Paul is, with his words, he is bringing the Philippians into the same conflict that he is engaged in. And he he is saying to them, you might be in Philippi and I might be in Rome, but there is one battle. And that battle is for perseverance in joy so that those who are being persecuted might look forward to the upward call of God. This is really the chief aim of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Andy mentioned it in the Sunday School Hour that this is a book that is called the Book of Joy. It's an epistle about sustaining one's life in Christ by returning to joy. And one of the ways that we do that in this book is we take the mindset of Jesus Christ who looked forward to the reward that was in front of him and he endured those things. So the mind which considers its future, that mind alone is able to withstand the terrible suffering of this present moment. And by considering it, it's able to say that this is a light, temporary suffering. So the point of this series, these last four and now today five weeks that we have spent in this book, is to look at human examples of the imitation of Jesus Christ in the Christian walk. The article that was read was about a book called Disciple by Juan Carlos Ortiz. And the point of that book is that there are not really two classes of Christians. There aren't disciples and believers. There's one class of Christians, and all who would come after the Lord Jesus Christ must take up their cross. The reason God gave the New Testament epistles was to create for us many examples to imitate. And so as we come to this final week, I thought it would be helpful to actually reorganize uh, the presentation order of these accounts so that we could cover the account of Timothy, Epaphroditus, Yodia, and Syntyche at the same time as we close the letter. Because it really is Paul's expression to these Philippians about the quality and privilege of the Christian church. The Christian faith is not a set of doctrines to be believed alone, but necessarily includes a relational context in which that faith can be lived out and worked out. That's the point of the book of Philippians. The point of the book of Philippians is to call believers up to the imitation of Jesus Christ in their context of loving their fellow saints. So I want to look at three 
portions of today's readings. In fact, we're not going to cover every verse that was read today because I'm really aiming at this one thing. What is the Christian church supposed to be? That is to say, what is its nature and what is its manner of life? How do Christians live together in churches and how is that foundational to their Christian discipleship? That is, if they call themselves Christians, they must necessarily have a context in which that Christianity is lived out and walked out. And there is nothing other given by God than the Christian church for that living out. So I want to look at Timothy and Epaphroditus first to see how each of them reveal a unique way that Paul is imitating God in his life. Then I want to look at this command for Euodia and Syntyche to agree together in the Lord and how difficult this must have seemed to maybe the readers, but also these two ladies and what it says about the special and unique role of women in the gospel. And then finally, I want to look at the idea that Paul is saying to the Philippians, he's reminding them of their grace that was given to them by God, by which they participated or partnered with him in the gospel. And there's this amazing reality that we see Paul's work in Asia Minor, and he says this phrase to these Philippians, you know that at the beginning of the gospel, no church entered into giving and receiving with me except for you. What an amazing statement to see what the Philippian church did through Paul. Imagine what would have taken place if all the churches would become healthy in that sense and give sacrificially for the point of the gospel. And so I I think this letter has shown us a number of things. And what I'm so encouraged by is just the working out of the Lord's timing to be so applicable to what we're going into as a church in this next season. The sacrifices that will be required in order to create a context in which more people can hear the gospel and more people can experience the blessing of belonging in the body. And so I am deeply excited to look at these passages with you. In the middle of his epistle, really in the second part of the second chapter, Paul gives a reminder to the Philippians about his great love for them. And he does this by telling them of his desire to have an in-person, in-the-flesh experience of communion with them. Paul, like the other writers of the New Testament epistles, is not content in just sending a letter. He wants to be there. And unfortunately, at this time in his life, he is entrapped in house arrest in Rome, and he cannot come to the Philippians. We see this in other epistles. For example, in 2 John and 3 John, John writes in his epistle that he has many things he'd like to say, but he rather would come and be present. Now, that's not dismissing the word over and against the importance of apostolic witness, but rather it is to say that the word must be fleshed out. The word must become incarnate in that sense. It is not enough for Christians to believe things without doing deeds in accordance with that belief. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Um, Epaphroditus had come to Paul and given a gift and had told him of the things which were happening in the um, Philippian church. There's, there's a very big difference between hearing a status update, whether it's in our day, Twitter or Facebook, versus someone coming and saying, oh, but you don't understand. It's real fruit. It's really good. Just putting things down on paper does not convey the, the sorts of things that Christian fellowship one-on-one conveys. And so we haven't just been given a book. We've been given the body as well. It is a means of God's grace for us. And so Paul, knowing this, says, I really want to send Timothy to be with you. And this is not him dismissing the Philippian church. He's not sending Timothy because he can't be bothered. He's sending Timothy because Timothy is precious to him. Verse 20, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Do you remember back to the first chapter of Philippians, how he describes the other preachers who are preaching out of rivalry? They preach for 
for themselves to be seen as great in the church. And yet Paul says, I trust Timothy with my heart. I have no one like him. And then he goes on to commend Timothy's work. Verse 22, you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. In that day, day and age, and even to this day, it is common for sons to take on the vocation of their father. And Timothy is not the biological son of Paul, but has become his spiritual son. It's a wonderful thing that Timothy had by given by God that his grandmother and his mother had a faith. And Paul says, I am sure that that very faith now dwells in you. And it is that faith which Timothy is continuing. But he didn't stop there with his grandmother and mother, but he came at Paul's bidding, at Paul's invitation to join his team, and Paul and Timothy became of one heart. They became of one mind. Timothy learned what caused the heart of Paul to beat. And he adopted that as his very own purpose for life. And so Timothy is saying, I hope to send, Paul is saying to the Philippians, I hope to send Timothy. He's saying, I can't come. The only thing I can do is I can send the best next option. It's my son. I'm going to send my son to the Philippians. By sending Timothy to these Philippians, Paul is sending his son. And for those of us who know the story, the significance of what Paul is doing, Paul can't come. He has to send his son. But guess what happens if Timothy dies along the way? Paul has no one like him. He's the only son. He's the only worker with him who shares Paul's heart. Paul's love for Timothy then becomes an extension of his love or an expression of his love for the Philippians. Paul's great love for Timothy as his only spiritual child then is the means by which he expresses his love for the Philippians. See, it's not enough for Paul to have great affection for the Philippians. They need some help in person, and the only way that Paul's affection can become deed is by sending this son. In this way, we see Paul is really imitating the faith of our father Abraham, right? We're commended in the scriptures to imitate the faith of Abraham. Paul writes that, you know, the, for, for women who live in humility and submission, they're imitating the faith of their mother, Sarah, and so Paul is imitating the faith of Abraham. What did Abraham do as an expression of his faith? We're told in the scriptures that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him. God counted it as Abraham was being righteous. But how was that righteous, righteousness proved out? James tells us clearly he was proved righteous by deeds that accorded with faith. That obedience that accords with love. Jesus said in John 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's a very interesting thing, but he's saying that the love for Jesus Christ is the foundation for obedience. Obedience isn't love. Love is the foundation of obedience. And so Paul, out of a great love for the Philippians, is doing something, and it's costly. And it's costly in the way that it was costly for the father. The father sent his only son to come and to die, to take on flesh. And so Paul here is reliving the story of the incarnation of the gospel. He's sending away his son. This is the sort of love that befits the Christian church. The Christian faith is not a set of doctrinal commitments or statements or beliefs to be held in the mind and possibly in the heart, but rather it also includes a community in which those beliefs are lived out and fleshed out. And the New Testament bears witness to this in every place. Paul again expresses his love for the Philippians by sharing his heart concerning Epaphroditus. For those of us who've come out of English culture or Western European culture, one of the great downfalls of Western European culture, especially with English people and to some degree German people, is they're not expressive with their heart. 
They just kind of say to their family, in a sense, well, I love you, and if anything changes, I'll let you know. (laughs) We've seen through this epistle, Paul over and over again is expressing his heart. He calls them in this very reading we heard today, my joy and my crown. He, He said in the first chapter, I love you with a godly affection. And so here he reveals to the Philippians his love for them by expressing his great concern over what happened to Epaphroditus. Verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So in this verse 25, he expresses his heart. And in verse 26, he shares what he has learned from Epaphroditus. Do you see how impossible some form of individualistic faith would would make these two verses? They couldn't happen without relationship in which a conversation was shared. Verse 27, indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Why would Paul have had sorrow upon sorrow? Because he has great concern for the Philippians, and he can't leave his house arrest. His sorrow is that he can't be with the one he loves. Many people in this church are um, young and some of them are in love and they're approaching things like marriage. And any of you who've been through the process of getting engaged, you know that as soon as you leave each other's company, there's an ache. And if this can happen on a human level just between man and and woman, what more should we expect from true Christian faith? True Christian faith expressed and experienced in a body should create an ache for the other person. I remember this extremely clearly as uh, my fiance and now wife was five hours from me. And, and the sort of distance and, and sorrow that attends that is good and healthy. God created that distance to be bridged. That distance should dissolve. And this is what Paul is saying. If I can't send Epaphroditus, then I would have sorrow upon sorrow because he's going to be the one who brings the letter and communes my heart to their hearts. And if I can't express my love through Epaphroditus, who the Philippians also love, then there can't be a bridging. And there would be a great disaster or, or a sorrow, a, a, a thing to be grieved. And so Paul is expressing his heart to the Philippians. Epaphroditus likewise is concerned for the Philippians himself. Christian love, that is love within the church or love between believers, has regard for its neighbor. We know that when Jesus was asked what the two great commandments or what the greatest commandment was, he responded, there are two great commandments. And instantly you would think, well, Jesus, didn't you hear the question? We asked, what is the greatest commandment? And you've replied with two commandments. It's like, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Well, I have three favorite books of the Bible. The, the point is, it's not two loves, it's one love. The first is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The great two commandments are one commandment, the love for neighbor stemming from, flowing from, engaged in and engaged by, supported by love for God. And love for God cannot exist without flowing to love for neighbor. We learn this especially from John's first epistle. If someone loves God or says he loves God but hates his brother, he's a liar because they can't be divorced. They are one love. So Epaphroditus loves these Philippians and he has a concern that they have heard that he's in trouble. He's troubled in his soul because he knows they're troubled in their soul. And that is holy communion in the church. And by holy communion, I do not merely mean the symbol of our communion. It's the substance. It's the grace of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of the church community. Epaphroditus does not merely love, does not merely love the Philippians, but he himself was the agent of their love being communicated to Paul. 
So I want you to imagine Paul here and the Philippians here. And for the Philippians to get the gift to Paul, they have to send it to him. But it's not like today where we get in a car, we can go 80 miles an hour, we have a good road, we have turn signals and stoplights and airbags and signs telling us how far we have to go and GPS which tells us to take another turn as it's recalculating. (laughs) Sending Epaphroditus to Rome was a very dangerous idea. You're in the Philippian church and you hear... We have to send money to Paul. We need to send money. Paul needs us to help him. Okay, we're going to send him some money. We don't have Western Union. We don't have cars. We don't have internet banking. We have to take the money to him. Probably in the form of those days with silver coins and gold coins. And that is a very dangerous proposition because money today is not a bearer instrument. Money today, if you, if you send me a check and the, someone intercepts the check, we can tell the bank to not pay the check. When the Philippians sent the money with Epaphroditus, they were sending Epaphroditus. They weren't just sending the money. If anything happens to the money, it's gone. But if anything happens to Epaphroditus, he's gone. He was the agent of their love to Paul. And likewise, he now, as he returns with this letter and with Paul's heart and comes back to the Philippians, he's going to be the agent of the love of Paul back to the Philippians. Verse 28, I am therefore the more eager to send him that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Was there anything wrong in the Philippian church as regards their love for Paul? No, there wasn't anything wrong with their love. But was it full? Was it complete? No, it wasn't complete. The reasoning is is they can't merely have good warm feelings about Paul. Those won't help Paul's debts and needs. In the city of Rome, they can't just wish Paul would be blessed. They have to take the blessing to him. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. He gave his life, or almost gave his life, for the cause of the Christian faith. This is what Paul is saying. His suffering, this, his illness, was experienced in the midst of delivering that love gift to Paul. In this way, Epaphroditus has become like Christ. In Colossians 1.14, Paul says that he, he fills up in his body what is lacking in the measure of Christ's sufferings on the sake of his church. And the reason he uses that phrase, what is lacking, is not to say that there was something deficient with the cross of Christ. But the news of the cross of Christ happened in Jerusalem. And for that news to take place, ground to be advanced in the Mediterranean world, it required his suffering. That as he brought that message to the world around him, the world persecuted him. And therefore, there was nothing lacking in the atonement except the fact that it hasn't yet been announced to the Gentiles in the Roman Empire. And that announcement will cost Paul his life. This is exactly what Epaphroditus is doing. There is something that is, being, uh, that is serving as an opposition to the expression of love. And Epaphroditus experiences the suffering on the, sake, on the behalf of another or for the sake of another. So the Philippians are told by Paul to receive him with joy and with honor. These Philippians must not esteem Epaphroditus lightly. In 3 John, he says that uh, regarding those who have gone out for the sake of the gospel, they are to send them in a way that is worthy of the Lord. And likewise here, Paul is saying that they are to receive Epaphroditus in a way that is worthy of the Lord. They're commanded to take care of Epaphroditus' needs because he was the one who took care of Paul's needs on their behalf. So the Christian church is a communion of believers in which true joy, real joy, suffering, and love is shared between people. It is not just a place that we come, we hear some songs, we maybe sing with them, we 
take time to listen to announcements and sermons, but it is a place in which real life, real joys, real pains are experienced, are shared, and are are taken on. It is necessary that this take place because this is how we walk out our discipleship. This is how we take up our cross and deny ourselves. We do things that cost us for the sake and betterment of others. Opening the final section of his letter, coming to Philippians 4 now, we hear a wonderful reminder from Paul expressing his love and telling them to stand firm in the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I mentioned this on Friday night. I've been spending a lot of time meditating on the nature of the crown that we will receive for those who persevere and overcome. And notice what Paul just said. He said, the Philippians are the crown. That's an amazing thing because it shows us the heart of Christ. Christ endured the cross. He despised the shame, but he did it for the joy that was set before him, which was not just communion with the Father. He had that but also a purchase of his bride that he will never lose. He loved his people to the end. And this is what Paul is saying. The Philippians are his joy. Not fame in the church, not becoming a great apostle, not being seen as having much zeal and much effectiveness and much fruit in the gospel, but it's these people themselves. Not numbers, but faces, names, souls. Friends, this is what he's saying. You are my joy. You are my crown. And again, going back to the epistles of John, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that some of the children, his spiritual children, are walking in the truth. What, what more could you want as a true disciple of Jesus Christ? In this context, in the context of radical love for the Philippians, and a support and a knowing of each other, he then is qualified to give a command for these two people to bury the hatchet, as it were. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellows workers whose names are in the book of life." Though the nature of the dispute between these two women is not fully known, we do know that it was either a dispute with the church as a whole, or it was a dispute that they held privately between themselves. Perhaps they had disagreed in some point of doctrine, which was not material. That is, it wasn't a heresy, it was a preference. And Paul then has heard of this disagreement. Much, most likely, he may have even known about it before he left, More likely, Epaphroditus had said to Paul, Paul, you've got to help us. We have this great problem. There are these two women in the Lord who have turned away. And then he asked, who were they? Oh, it was Yodia and Syntyche. And this at Paul's heart is, he's, he's grieved. He knows these women have been fruitful in the gospel. He knows that they have reality and substance with the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, they're at an impasse. Something needs to take place. We learn from this command that private disputes in the church, which turn into disruption and uh, a, a lack of agreement and bitterness, those private disputes then become the purview of the church as a whole. What do I mean by that? If these two women had reconciled, and had come to an agreement about how to live with one another in harmony, such that bitterness was no longer an option in their relationship, it would not have bubbled up to Paul's attention. And so, as Christians, we do not just get involved in every little dispute that we hear about. But when disputes take place, and when they're not resolved, God commands his people to address them, and he commands them to address them in certain ways. Pastors and elders are therefore required to mediate such disagreements, eagerly calling these people to peace so that no one is hardened in sin. We're warned by the Lord Jesus himself through the parable of the two servants, the one who owed millions of dollars, the one who owed about $20. 
that if, no, if you retain unforgiveness and hardness of heart, you will be thrown into outer darkness. Why? Because it is impossible for those who are truly converted to retain unforgiveness to the end of their life. It should not be possible for those who've been recreated by the Holy Spirit, who are now putting to death the deeds of the flesh and are putting on the new self for them to remain in unforgiveness. Paul says, I know these are fellow workers. Be sure that they do not lose their crown, that they do not lose what they've worked for. He tells this fellow worker, whoever he is, the true companion of Paul, probably an elder at Philippi, to address this unforgiveness and this bitterness, and he has to do it. Just as God's grace abounds in the midst of sin, Paul's comments here in verse 2 explain a beautiful aspect of the work of women in the gospel ministry. We know that from 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, but also verses 9 through 15, that Paul expressly forbids women to preach the gospel. We know that that is the case. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And our age hates that verse. But the Christian scriptures stand against every age. And it is not whether that scripture comports with our age, but whether our age comports with the scripture. That is what matters. And the beautiful thing about what Paul says in these verses is it highlights something about the nature of these women as they have worked for the gospel. They have become, in his words, fellow workers by their faith, by their encouragement, by their support. Whether it be financially or simply just encouraging on a level one-on-one, they have engaged in the same work that Paul has done. And therefore, they are fellow workers. Though they do not occupy the same function, nevertheless, their participation is essential and it is not able to be discounted. As Paul taught the Corinthians, every member in the body, though he has a different function, is vital. When you think about this, it's so true. If you considered the option of losing a pinky or a limb or an organ, no one would voluntarily lose any part of the body. There are no unimportant parts of your body. And just because there is a difference in function does not mean there is a difference of importance or necessity. This is what the Christian church has always maintained. These women are not second-class citizens. They are not even second-class workers, though they don't occupy the same function. Why is this important? Because it's not just the difference between men and women. It's also the difference between people in the church who will never publicly preach the gospel, but they privately encourage and strengthen and minister. God gave certain gifts to the church, and not all people have the gift of teaching. Does that mean that those who do not teach are unimportant? Not in the least. You see, the difference in function is a beautiful and wonderful thing. And for Christians in our age today, we should never be ashamed of what God's word says. Rather, it is the case that these women have become fellow workers. They are not second-class citizens in the body, and they are not saved in a second-class way. Paul highlights the grounds for this fellow worker to help these women because of this purpose. Their names are written in the book of life. It is not as if apostles and teachers get into the kingdom first. Those whose names are written in the book of life were written, according to the book of Revelation, from before the foundation of the earth. What this tells us is that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in their perfect knowledge and community and understanding of what the redemptive plan would be and take place, preordained and elected people to be redeemed, and he put their names in a book. Some people hear this and say, well, does that mean we shouldn't evangelize because they might not be in the book? And on the flip side, it means we should evangelize because there are people in that book who haven't yet heard, who haven't yet received the gospel. 
but it also does something that totally transforms our identity as human beings. You, if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been loved with an eternal love and you have been known forever. That is the kind of love that the Lord has given to us. Thus, the reason that they must forgive one another is that they have been forgiven by God. And if God has forgiven their sins, who are they to retain sins against each other? And this does not apply simply to Yodia and Syntyche. Wherever in any of our churches we experience this sort of disagreement and bitterness between members, we must address it, but we ourselves also must be sure that we are not maintaining and harboring bitterness. So, Paul finally closes his letter thanking the Philippians for joining in the work that he has done. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Do you remember how we talked about the love that they had for Paul was not enough? They had to send something to him. They had to express that love. And that expression took place when Epaphroditus could take something to them. To Paul. You see, the, the Philippians may not have had a time or the, enough money to send, and now they've had enough money to help Paul in some measurable way. And so they had concern, and that concern eventually resulted in an opportunity. After revealing his internal contentment, Paul then goes on to commend them in what they have done in the past. Verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Though the Philippians shared Paul's trouble, Paul says that they entered into receiving. Do you, do you understand what's going on here? Paul has a trouble and that trouble is extremely important. Paul is running out of money. He's in house arrest. He cannot work his trade. He's not really given freedom. He's given a little bit. He can have visitors. He can move about a little bit. He has a measure of freedom. But he is running out of money. And so he has a great trouble. And when the Philippians share that trouble, it doesn't become their trouble. It becomes grace from God. That is what sharing in trouble does in the Christian experience. Yes, there's hardship. Yes, they had to send money that they probably needed, but it resulted in receiving something from the Lord. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Though Paul was the recipient of these gifts, it is clearly the case that God is the recipient of the gift. The Philippians are blessing Paul. Paul says that offering was really a sacrificial offering to God. This harkens back, if you remember, to the earlier part of his letter, which he said, if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm ready for that. He says, my sacrifice of my life is going to complete or make full what you began. And it's going to be wonderful to God. God will receive this offering. And nevertheless, he says to them, they've given to him, but they really gave to God. And likewise, as they've given to God, God has rewarded them. He's given them fruit to their credit. This obedience with natural money, as we know from the New Testament, reveals a heart that is truly in love with God. As Jesus taught, you cannot love God and money. You cannot serve God and money. He says to us in the, in the per, um, Sermon on the Mount, he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And you might ask to yourself, where do I send that check? I want to do that. Paul says they've done that. By supporting him, they have received fruit that is to their credit. That is a wonderful, pleasing offering. And therefore, because Paul can see the grace of God operating in the Philippians expressed through the reality of their love gift, 
their actual sending of money, he can promise because he knows the Holy Spirit is at work within them. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The prosperity teaching loves to twist this verse and say every need. Well, I I need groceries this week and I need a car payment. That's not what Paul is saying. He's writing to the Philippian church. Paul knows that the Philippians have their own problems in their city. There are rival gods in their city. There are emperor worshipers in their city. Paul writes a letter saying, I know that the Lord Jesus Christ will not forsake his body. My God will supply every need. He's not giving them an excuse to be lax. He's giving them the foundation or impetus to be eagerly working in the gospel. That's what he's saying. All of these people, Timothy, Epaphroditus, Yodia, Syntyche, the Philippians themselves, you all have joined with me in the gospel and God has got this. He will make sure it's right. In each and every account through this letter, we have seen clearly the working out of Christian faith in the context of community. Christ has given his church leaders who are to work for her maturity. If you remember in Ephesians chapter, I believe it's four, that God has given apostles, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, prophets for the working of the ministry. Oh wait, excuse me. He gave those people to equip the saints so the saints could work the ministry. God has given leaders to the church And they are to encourage everyone, themselves included, to complete the ministry that they've received in the Lord. And that maturity, which is necessary for individual believers, is the task of these leaders. But these leaders are not over the people. They are working, as Paul said, working with you for your joy. Not working over you for compliance, but working with you for your delight in the gospel. And therefore, the Christian leaders that Christ has given to his people must imitate Christ in their leadership. And that imitation requires voluntarily laying down their lives. Therefore, true spiritual leadership within the church is the work of spiritual fathering, working for the joy of God's people. As we've seen throughout the letter, Paul, as a wise spiritual father, is expressing his heart know that he really truly loves them and therefore they're encouraged and can receive the rebuke that he sends. Though we must individually respond to the gospel, the response to the gospel is not worked outside of a context of individualism, but is worked in a context of a people. And so you have to individually repent, receive the gospel, trust in Christ. No one can do that for you. But your obedience to these things could never be done apart from a people that you relate with. The Bible itself, if you think about it, was actually a great symbol of this. The Bible is a collection of writings that were preserved by the church and translated into words that you and I can read. And these words tell us about the gospel. The gospel is not given apart from the scriptures. And therefore, if you maintain, well, really, it's me coming to Christ, immediately you have to recognize, no, it's the the grace of God working through his people. And it is his grace which supplies the scriptures. As disciples of Christ, therefore, we see that imitation of Christ could never be done apart from working in the community, in among the beloved. This imitation, therefore, of laying down one's life, of being willing to suffer illness that would bring us to the point of death like Epaphroditus, of working hard for the sake of the gospel, in giving sacrificially to to love on Paul, all of those things can only be done with an eye to the future, remembering the prize that awaits those who overcome. Because I can see that crown, I can suffer today in my circumstances. And only by seeing a reward that far surpasses the temporary pain can I persevere. That is exactly what Paul is calling these Philippians to. Therefore, God has given the church to be the arena wherein weekly we are fed, strengthened, encouraged, and exhorted, and occasionally 
maybe not weekly, rebuked. But we need it. And where else can we be rebuked? I've almost never rebuked myself. Now, I've noticed my sins, but even that's been the Holy Spirit, isn't it? The point is that we need the context of the church. In the church, therefore, God has given real flesh and blood examples of Christ to be imitated. It's not enough to know the work of Christ in some theoretical sense or even a true clinging to and a trust in the work of Christ. God has given the church to be the avenue or the arena of walking out individual discipleship so that we could take up our cross as we love each other. And through the imitation of these examples, Paul says to imitate him, through that imitation we prove the reality of the grace of God working in our life. This is what my heart is at the end of this series that we've come through. That as a church who is about to engage in a great and very long and hard project, that these verses would become precious and sweet to you as you work out That when you go to that building at 1645 Spalding, you would pick up your rake or your hammer or the trash bag and you would say to yourself, I am working together with you for your joy. The point of that building is to glorify Jesus Christ. It's not even a place to have us, actually. When you think about it, we are all being strengthened and encouraged and it's a place in which we can invite people who are being drawn by God. Yes and amen to all of that. The point of that building is that we would use it in a way that honors God through the preaching of the gospel, that many people would be delivered from darkness and would see the light of Jesus Christ. And by picking up that trash bag, you are helping create a place which means you are working together with them for their joy. Now, there's a lot more than just trash bags to be picked up and moved around. If, if, I, if you went to that building and you worked really hard and you thought about it and you just constantly said, well, I got to be part of the team. I got to do this. I got to not be seen as lazy. That would not bring glory to God. The, the heart attitude which brings glory to Jesus Christ is by having the perspective of the purpose for the building, which is the purpose for every single thing. The chief point of everything is to glorify God and to enjoy him. So please join with me in prayer as we close this series. Father, your word is of infinite worth, and we love your word. We pray that you would cause these words to not be simply truth out there, but it would become truth in here. We pray that these verses would become precious and sweet and they would become for us the motivation in the moment to work for the joy of your people and for your glory. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as a people as we endeavor in this way to not build for our sake or for ourselves, but that we would build for the sake of your Son. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.